Our first scripture reading comes from the prophet Amos. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and bring ruin to the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath so that we may offer wheat for sale? We will make the ephah small and the shekel great, and practice deceit with false balances, buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and selling the sweepings of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Our second reading comes from the Gospel according to Luke. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking this position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as a manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God in us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Parables like this one have confounded interpreters for decades and decades. There's no easy answer. It's perplexing, even scandalous, what we hear and read in this parable. And these parables remind us that we can't reduce parables of Jesus to simple teachings on morality. 
And these challenging parables invite us to foster permanent questioning, as one commentator puts it. And as Rainer Maria Rilke would say, they make us walk humbly and to live the questions they bring to mind for us and also love those questions. To walk humbly with God, as the prophet Micah would say. In other words, we're not called to figure everything out as God's children. We are called to be faithful. And part of that faithfulness is to keep wondering. Write everything in pencil. Keep listening. And whenever we are perplexed about meaning, we can ask that question, where and how is love growing? And then follow that path. The parable and the interpretive remarks that follow it in the passage don't all seem to relate to one another. They even can contradict each other. Each statement would be a sermon on its own, and I promise I'm not going to preach all of those sermons today. But together, I hope we will keep wondering and listening together. A challenge, a big challenge in this passage is found in verse 8. The parable goes, and his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than our children of light. And maybe even more challenging is Jesus using the example of the manager's dishonesty to teach his disciples. Verse 9 reads, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Is Jesus commending dishonesty? This Jesus, the Son of the Most High, God's Word made flesh? The dishonest dealings of the manager pushes against assumptions we may have that only scoundrels serve as examples of what not to do. Yet Jesus seems to use this as an example of how to be a children of the light, a children walking with God. The manager in the parable, knowing his job is about to end, takes urgent action to secure his future. And in that context of an economic system of slavery, his security depended upon relationships, for there was no financial security available to him. So he goes to his master's debtors, likely tenant farmers, and reduces their debt to win their, his, to win their favor, to secure for him some lodging, some housing that he knows he will soon need. Could Jesus' use of this example, this real-life system of that time, serve to teach disciples to use the same kind of urgency, the same kind of cleverness and vigilance to secure their lives within the realm of God? Could Jesus be saying, be urgent in all you say and do about being faithful with each and every moment and seeking to build relationships with one and all, whether stranger, foe, family, to help bring in God's realm of love and forgiveness and peace and justice right here, right now. Do not lack zeal 
in doing those things. Considering this whole passage again, this whole parable, it's found in the context of the message of stewardship. It's about proper use, and it's about our relationship with money and wealth. And the sum of this passage teaching is in the final verse, verse 13. No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In the image of slavery here, that final word, you cannot serve God, that word literally means be enslaved to or by. So this tells us that whatever we worship, we will be enslaved to. And this theme, the subject of wealth and money and right relationship with it, is prominent throughout the scriptures. And the church reformer Martin Luther over 500 years ago said, it is the most common idol on earth. And as such, it can be very dangerous to the welfare of humanity, both for those who have the wealth and the power to get more, and for those who lack that power to get any wealth, let alone a little. The prophet Amos gives an example of the allure and the power that wealth has to enslave our thinking and our actions in ways that may surprise us without our even knowing it. As Whitney read, we heard in Amos chapter 8, the people are saying, when will the Sabbath be over so we can sell grain again and get busy making money again? We will tip the scales in our favor. We'll exploit the poor and powerless to increase, increase our wealth and our security even more. Then we'll chew them up and spit them out when they cease to be an asset. Recent news reported the chartered airplanes of migrants, of asylum seekers, who had recently crossed into Texas from Mexico those seeking asylum from home, hopeless and dangerous situations in their homelands of nations like Venezuela, those in Central America, and others to our, our south and our neighbors. And these asylum seekers, having survived the arduous and dangerous, sometimes lethal journey, sometimes months long or years long, to seek sanctuary, were met by persons in San Antonio, as some of those asylum seekers told reporters. They were asked the question, do you want a job? And then they were given papers and taken to an airplane. They did not know where they were going. They were on planes bound for Martha's Vineyard. And you may have already, or you can read the story, and we can't know all the motives of those orchestrating this transport or of those funding it. But in light of the gospel, the question Jesus would have us ask, was the welfare of the whole put as a priority with human lives? Was anyone being exploited? Were relationships human to human, soul to soul, valued above all else? Was love growing? 
taking care not to claim any understanding of all the challenges facing the immigration crisis in our own nation and around the world and its toll on everyone involved. I couldn't help but consider the story of Amos in light of what's happening in our world today. How has wealth and power become an idol leading to the disregard of the humanity at those at the bottom of our economic structure, the very powerless? Whatever becomes our idol becomes what we worship, becomes our master, becomes what we are enslaved to. And when we find ourselves in the grip of something other than God, what it really means is we have forgotten in our human frailty, we have forgotten whose we are. Our faith ancestors, the Israelites, show us that this is part of being human. We're meant to stay close to God to remember that we belong to love, that God has covenanted with us to care for us and love us always. But fear can take over in our finitude. And we reach out for other things to find a sense of security, of belonging. And then we find that there's never enough of those things that become our idol. It will never fill us up sustainably. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is based on Christian principles, tells us this, that deep down in everyone, every man, woman, child, every person, is the fundamental idea of God. Like God is stamped on our heart. But sometimes that idea, that reality, gets obscured by calamities we face, by pride that leads us to worship other things, and with fear being a common reason for our idolatry. And we begin to question this, God. What if God isn't really here? What if God doesn't really see and hear and understand me? What if God doesn't care about the ones I love? And what if there is no God looking out for the world? Jesus, the one sent to us by God to show us how God wants to be with us, shows us how it is to be, to be enslaved to the Holy One that we belong to. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. And it is a burden, but he says, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. This yoke will not hurt you or harm you. It will fit you perfectly and I'm with you always. This passage today speaks about being faithful with what we have in the littlest of things. We all have been entrusted with some measure of wealth, of time, talents, or treasure. And a story from the incidents, the encounters, the happenings on Martha's Vineyard with our asylum-seeking neighbors reminded me of faithfulness with little things. A woman who lives on Martha's Vineyard named Katrina Lima, having heard she was out the evening with her friends and got a phone call and was alerted to the situation of the, the planes full of asylum seekers that landed and that were these people in desperate need of help. And Katrina, being from an immigrant family herself and fluent in Spanish, was asked to come and help interpret so the folks could serve these people in great need. 
So she dropped everything and went and started interpreting and organizing donations to help shelter and feed and care for these people who had no idea where they were or where they were going. And Katrina, faithful with the littlest thing of a gray folding chair, along with her caring, she opened this folding chair and set it next to her and invited these new friends of hers seeking asylum to have a seat and to tell her their story. For Katrina knew the value and the healing power of being heard. She was faithful with such a little thing. And also on Martha's Vineyard, we heard about an Episcopal church, how a church member contacted their pastor who was out of state the last few days, told him the scene, and asked the same question that the dishonest manager asked at the beginning of the parable. What do I do? And this parishioner asked the pastor, what do we do? And they as a congregation got busy and they cared for these people, sheltering them, feeding them, clothing them. One meaning of Jesus' commendation could mean for us, one meaning why he's recommending the shrewdness of this dishonest manager is to be that vigilant on the spot whenever needed to care for those around us, to get busy quickly, like this church, the Episcopal Church did, not for themselves, but seeking to secure the welfare of the most marginalized, the most in need. That is the, the shrewdness we're invited to, or the urgency to live out our call as Christ followers. And reporters asked her what their church was up to. She said, we're doing what churches are supposed to do and taking care of people as they show up. And friends, thinking about all the ways that we heed this call to be vigilant with the littlest of things that are huge in impact. I think of yesterday, this event that some of us at Knox gathered with an organization in Cincinnati called Humanity, Not Insanity. And some of you know this group was formed by 1978 graduates of Woodward High School here in Cincinnati after the George Floyd murder and the tragedy of that. They brought classmates together and friends to discuss how to relate and be with one another to help relieve racial tension. It's not political or religious, but it's relational. They believe that when strangers from different backgrounds and neighborhoods and races meet, they can become friends in a way that makes a difference. And the world will be eased of a little tension, and they believe that the positive ripple of this will grow and bring a brighter future for everyone. So thank you to Knox's Racial Justice Ministry for alerting us to this opportunity to partner with humanity, not insanity, and a wonderful cookout happened in a park yesterday. The second annual that these people have offered to the community simply to be together, to have a dance contest for the kids and adults, to play games, all in service to relationships and building that love of Christ among us. 
When we have found ourselves worshiping something other than God, we have become forgetful. And we might forget that it's relationships that save us. First and foremost, the one with God, and then the one God invites us to be in with one another. Considering all the wealth we have and how love heals everything. Yesterday, I was on a virtual meditation group I discovered during the pandemic. We meet on Zoom for Centering Prayer, and at the end, the leader invites us to share prayer concerns and petitions. And one gentleman, remembering that love heals everything, asked for prayers for President Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia, specifically that Putin would know how much he is loved. Another person asked for prayers for our asylum-seeking neighbors on Martha's Vineyard and for those who care for them. And friends, there are countless ways that you, too, are faithful with a little or a lot, as the case may be. We give thanks for all the ways we can join together as Christ's body right here. Last weekend at Knox Rocks the Block, our party on the lawn, many of you offered Christ's hospitality, a little thing to help others feel welcome. Some of you continue to serve Third Presbyterian Church as tutors. You make meals and you deliver them for that community. And those here at Knox, you lead Bible studies and book groups to help us go deeper with God. You pack food for our hungry kids in Cincinnati. You serve the homeless with IHN. You write cards of prayer and send them to Knox members you may not have even met yet. And many of you pray, and you pray some more in your way. Pause for a moment to consider how else you have been faithful with a little, or how someone in being faithful with a little has served and touched your life. Pause for a moment and bring those to mind with gratitude. And may those memories, those realities serve to encourage you today. In closing, I want to share a story about someone who does have great wealth and power and was so faithful in a little gesture that made a huge difference and inspires others. This is a story about Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth. A lot of stories are being shared about her right now as we remember her life and her legacy. And this one comes from a Presbyterian pastor who was on a tour over in England and was touring the House of Lords and asked the tour guide for the craziest story he ever encountered or experienced with the queen. And this is the story he told. You may know that every legislative session begins with a visit from the queen. It's a very regal tradition. She wears her crown and robe and processes down a hallway lined with guards who literally strike the stone walls with their swords to make sparks fly as she walks by. And the hallway ends at the House of Lords, where the queen enters to take her seat on the throne and essentially commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. 
Well, several, several years ago, they were forced to break tradition to accommodate the queen in her older age as she was no longer able to climb the stairs. So they started to use the elevator to go to the House of Lords, the floor that that lived on. Well, the first year they did this, the, the operator accidentally pushed the button for the wrong floor. And rather than the entrance to Parliament, he pressed the button for the maintenance floor. And the elevator went up, the door opened, and Alice from the cleaning crew with her head down, pushing her cleaning car into the elevator as she has done countless times. Only this time, as the door closed behind her, she had pinned the Queen of England against the wall in that small lift. Alice is stuck in the elevator with the queen and her guard, and she lets out an expletive not fitting the presence of royalty. And then an awkward silence, no one quite knowing what to do. But the silence was broken by the queen's uncontrollable laughter. And then the most remarkable invitation. Rather than opening the door of the elevator to let Alice off, the queen asked the operator to take them down to the proper floor. And the door opened. And everyone's shock. Here walks out Her Majesty and Alice, the maintenance worker. The queen in her regalia, along with Alice in her uniform, processed side by side down the royal hallway. But it gets better. Once a year for the rest of Alice's life, she was invited to Buckingham Palace for high tea with her newfound friend, the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth. The end. But it's not the end of the story, of course. This story lives on because it is faithfulness with the littlest of things, expression of love to a stranger who became a dear friend. An example of how someone with the utmost power can help love on and serve and offer acknowledgement and dignity to someone who might be considered at the bottom and may be easily exploited in our world. Remembering what it means to serve the master we worship, to be enslaved. Let us be enslaved to God remembering that it is Jesus' path we are on and that this is a master who is trustworthy, the God of our understanding, our perfect mother, our perfect father, that we can place the weight of our trust into God, our creator. And Jesus says, remember, I am with you always. It is peace I give you and will leave with you forever. Friends, may this be true for us, and may we know that we possess the greatest treasure right here in our hearts. It may seem little, but it can change the world, and we are those change agents. Thanks be to God. Amen.